What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Tanya Brannigan, the journalist and now author whose years spent reporting in China. I've given her not only an intricate understanding of the country's political history, but also its political trauma, both of which form the basis for her new book, Red Memory. Our host for this discussion is the journalist, author and former China editor for BBC News, Carrie Gracie. Let's join Carrie now. Hello and welcome. We're recording today in Spiritland Studios in central London on Thursday, January the 12th. And I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, who is Tanya Brannigan. Now, Tanya is the foreign leader writer for The Guardian and Before she was that, she was for seven years the China correspondent for the newspaper and she covered every aspect of that astonishing country's turbulent present. But her book here is about China's recent past. It's called Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. It is a brilliant book. Tanya, I suppose your central theme in a way in this book is that although the decade of the Cultural Revolution has been deliberately forgotten to a large degree in China. It still propels, shapes so much of what happens in China in the present every day. So let's take a contemporary issue, the U-turn on zero COVID, which is, of course, a, a huge story in China and touching every aspect of life there. How does the shadow of the Cultural Revolution still fall on that? Well, I think one thing that's really striking is that we saw actually people in China Uh, referring to the Cultural Revolution in the context of zero COVID. So when we saw these really unusual protests right across cities about the zero COVID policies prior to the U-turn, it wasn't just people saying, axe the lockdowns and so forth. But in a few places, there are actually people holding up signs saying, we want reform, not the Cultural Revolution. And so although it's this subject that really isn't discussed at an official level, it is very much there. And what did they mean, we want reform, not the Cultural Revolution? What was Cultural Revolution about their COVID experience? Well, they can see the the parallels, the sort of the contemporary resonance in the way that you have this extraordinary um, level of control from the state, and particularly that we've seen under Xi Jinping, who is a man 
so fundamentally formed by the Cultural Revolution and the experiences that he and his family had in it. Um, one of the sort of striking things, of course, is that his father, who was this revered sort of revolutionary figure, one of the people who had been purged, in fact, even before the Cultural Revolution and then came back um, afterwards, his father and other party elders tried really hard uh, to move away from strongman rule in the wake of the Cultural Revolution. And yet we've seen she kind of dismantling the sort of safeguards, you might say, that were put in place. So the kind of the collectivization, these unwritten norms over things like term limits. We've seen she embarking on a third term. And we're seeing really a ruler who's not constrained by those concerns about consensus, about working together anymore, um, who has the national media sort of lauding him and had associated him, of course, so closely uh, with the zero COVID so message. These were, so if I'm reading you correctly, you mean there's a sense that there were huge mistakes being made, which had a national impact and a personal impact for all 1.4 billion people in China, and that these were really the mistakes of one individual at the top of a totalitarian almost structure. Yes, that it felt as if power was just much less constrained than it had been before. I mean, that might sound odd, perhaps, to people sort of looking at a system that has been run by the Communist Party for so long. But there was a time in China where there was more space for civil society, there was more openness, more tolerance. And we've seen a return to a much more sort of ideological style, much greater party control of sort of spheres that it really had retreated from to some degree, like civil society and academia, um, but also much more surprisingly, perhaps sort of business and the arts and entertainment. And actually concern over space, culture. people's individual lives. I mean, this is something you know, that really resonated with me at the whole zero COVID kind of conversation about cultural revolution. Because friends of mine in China were saying to me, oh my gosh, we've gone back to the cultural revolution. People can just burst into your home and drag you out and you have no control. You don't know why it's so arbitrary. It was all of that sense of traumatic unsafety. Yes, that feeling that there was really no space that was left to you because that was something that the party had actually allowed people. If, if, if you weren't going to go on the street and uh, demand your rights. You know, there was a degree of personal space, of personal liberty you had. And yet we've seen, even with things like sort of movies, that they've become much more sort of straightened, that uh, we've seen um, much more concern about sexuality, for example. All of these things, which perhaps people had sort of clawed out an amount of space for themselves, it feels as if that was being taken away anyway. And as you say, with zero COVID, that's really laid bare, this sense that you're so powerless before and, the state. And yet, to come to the book again, you say in the book, it's a decade, 1966 to 76, a decade that has disappeared. So there's that strange paradox that it's a decade that's driving everything, shaping everything, propelling, and that is back in all of these respects that you've just mentioned. And yet it's disappeared. So... I want to talk about the amnesia and sense of disappearance in a moment, but to the extent that it has disappeared, you know, haul it back onto the table between us and tell us what happened in that decade. What is it that disappeared that needs to be remembered? It's an absolutely devastating time. I mean, we see two million people die, 36 million people more are hounded, um, either for supposed political crimes, sometimes just really accidents of birth. They were perhaps born into a landlord's family. 
you've actually seen more devastating moments in China if you just count the death toll. Um, but I think what's really staggering about the Cultural Revolution is that it ripples out across the whole country and it affects everybody. And it's felt at the most intimate level as well. So it begins as an emperor's reassertion of power. Uh, Mao is worried about his position following the Great Leap Forward. He launched this attempt to industrialise and collectivise the economy, but it was just so insanely sort of hubristic that it ends in complete disaster. And it's in every classroom and every bedroom and every breakfast table by the end of it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, tens of millions of people die in the the Great Leap Forward. He's worried about his position. He's worried about his legacy. um, And he sets out to eradicate any form of opposition within the party. Uh, But he does this critically by bringing in the masses, by using this mass sentiment. There's already a personality cult that's built up around him. You know, Mao is the red sun in our hearts. He's he's there everywhere. I mean, you wake up in the morning, he's on the pillows, he's on your mirror. Um, He uses this extraordinary veneration in which he's held and he wields it against the party. And so both of his heirs apparent will die before the decade is out. Um, But because it's carried out through the people, uh, it ripples out and we see farmers dying. We see not just revered scholars and artists dying, um, but infants, even in some cases, being killed because of their sort of class background, as (sighs) horrific um, as that is. And so it's the intimate treacheries, I think, that that play out that are often really sort of the most devastating people. It's when husbands are turning on wives. It's when colleagues and friends are sort of turning upon each other, sort of households really ripped apart by this. And that, in some ways, is, I think, what people find it hardest to move past. And also, because it sort of moves at such dizzying speed, it's hard to keep up with. And this is an ideological crusade for Mao as well. He wants to purify the nation, purifies its hearts and souls, make these people into the sort of the real communists he believes they should be. Uh, And as this ripples out, we just sort of see these extraordinary levels of fervour that are impossible for us to understand. I mean, things like... um, police at one point directing traffic with copies of the little red book rather than batons because only Mao's words can show you where to go. It's a a level of absurdity and horror combined that is really sort of hard for us to imagine, I think. It's a kind of religious fanaticism, isn't it? It really is, yes. Um, and it, it begins, Mao uses as his shock troops, not just the people, but specifically young people and, and children. We're talking very young teenagers, some sort of 13 or 14. Uh, we see these sort of political vigilante groups forming, red guards who sweep through the cities and tear down temples, but also are beating and murdering teachers and scholars and artists and so forth. It's a just a horrific moment. And then as it ripples out, um, we see factional fighting between them. And even when that initial wave of Red Guard violence is over, then we go on to see this sort of factional turmoil um, and a more orderly, but in fact, in some ways, more deadly uh, phase of people being executed as counter-revolutionaries or for supposedly being involved in conspiracies, which in some cases... We're told that, you know, these conspiracies are so sinister because they don't even know they're a part of it. So let's talk about individual lives then. 
because this comes down, even in a country of 1.4 billion people, to individuals, as you've explained so articulately. You wrote the book through interviewing, and of course these people are now in their 50s or 60s um, who lived through it as teenage shock troops. Um, what, what did they say about it? What were their recollections and how did they relive? Well, of course, many people, most people, don't really want to talk about it. Um, and what fascinated me was that there were these people who didn't necessarily want to talk about it, but I think felt they had to. Um, and so it's a very mixed picture. There are people who still think the Cultural Revolution was right. And that the only really thing that really went wrong with it was that it ended. And yes, there shouldn't have been so much violence, but Mao was quite right to sort of believe in this purity. There are also people who are deeply reflective about what they did. Um, so I start the book um, really where I began um, in finding out about the Cultural Revolution uh, with a painter called Xu Weixin, a, a wonderful painter who's done these immense sort of two and a half metre tall portraits of people who died in the Cultural Revolution. And he told me that the, the first in the series, as far as he was concerned, was the very first picture he remembers drawing at the age of seven or eight. Um, he'd been told that his school teacher, who he'd liked very much, was actually the daughter of a landlord. And he was so shocked by his naivety in the moment that he had believed in this lovely woman that he drew this hideous caricature of her and pinned it up to the blackboard. And she walked in and saw it, and he says he just remembers her turning white because, of course, at that point, as a small child, he didn't really realise where it could lead. But even that early in the Cultural Revolution, it was very clear to her that it could mean disgrace, being ousted. And ultimately, of course, many teachers paid their price with their lives. So that was a, a drawing, but you, you also went on to others who actively denounced teachers or were involved in violence. Yes, absolutely. And who are now trying to reckon with that. Um, and I think in many cases find it hard, even as they address it, perhaps to fully acknowledge everything or the full implications of what they did. I mean, they struggle with it very understandably. I think it would be easy for people perhaps to judge them. But I don't think any of us can imagine what it was like to be 13 or 14 years old, to have this man that you revered as a, a god telling you that it was your duty to see these, this chaos unfurl around you. And in many cases, I mean, one of the most striking things to me was uh, my sort of first interviewee in the book, who was a young girl at the time, talking about how she felt at the time that she wasn't brave enough because she wasn't willing to beat teachers up. You know, she was attending these things, but she wasn't so she willing felt to attack them. in the moment and she felt, that she didn't she, she felt it have wasn't the right. She felt it wasn't right, but there was also a part of her that was thinking, you know, should I be doing this? Why am I, am I just not strong enough? So if she didn't beat her teachers, why is she still obsessing about the Cultural Revolution now, revisiting it in her mind? Because at that stage, even criticising a teacher could sort of open the door to so much worse. Um, being a red guard, seeing what was happening, going to struggle sessions. Um, and I think as well the ambivalence, because in some ways for her it was a time of great freedom. She was a young teenage girl and she was travelling the country with her friends. She said in some ways at times it felt almost more like sightseeing or a holiday. And yet at the same time they also believed that they were on this revolutionary mission and it was their duty to bring the country to this kind of state of it's great so ideological isn't it? purity. Because it's got not just the savage 
blood baths and the struggle sessions, but it's also got aspects of music festival and interrailing holiday and young people kind of having fun together. Yeah, and it's very hard for us to imagine. And I think, as I said, very easy to judge, but I think it's just impossible for us to know what we would have done in those circumstances. Well, especially really difficult. I was just listening to you and thinking, how difficult it would it be to try to re-explore the map of what was going on when there's no actual historical context that is freely available or discussed or processed um, as a society. You've got nothing, you've got nowhere to kind of anchor yourself, have you, as you explore? Exactly. And I think some of these people spoke out precisely because at the time I started writing, we were seeing a few more voices becoming evident, partly, I think, because of the internet. It was... Mm easier to share your story. Yeah, I found um, that really interesting because I made a documentary series in 1996 on the 30th anniversary of the outbreak of the Cultural Revolution, um, which is obviously a pre-internet age. And then it was very interesting to me to read your interviews, which are slightly post the arrival of the internet. Yes, I think there was that sense that people were more able to speak out and that was encouraging others. Um, but also I think age, perhaps getting older and thinking about what had happened and wanting to record it and that sense that it just wasn't anywhere there in society. So what sort of marks the people in the book out, I guess, are they, they, they are the ones who want to talk about it, whether because they believe that actually there are positive lessons to be learnt from the Cultural Revolution, as, as bizarre as that might sound to us. You know, they, they see it as a time when they were able to speak out um, in a way they couldn't now, and they see it as a time when there was greater respect for working people and less inequality and so forth. Um, so I think in many cases as well, it's, it's driven by their view of the present, inevitably. Part of the urge to speak out about what happened then is a sense of what the present is like and what it could be. Um, And for people on the other side of the argument who see the Cultural Revolution as a warning, that's part of it too. They think, well, if we don't remember it, we may end up repeating it. And so for those reasons too, people want to keep it alive. And then for some people, it's so deeply personal. So um, in the case of the young man who denounced his mother, I mean, he was 17. He sent her to her death, he and his father, by revealing that she'd denounced Chairman Mao. And I don't think many of us could live with that knowledge. So to him, he wanted to keep that alive, um, to protect his mother's grave initially, and perhaps just to be true to his memory of her in a way that he hadn't been able to be true to her when she was alive. Mm. To say something critical of Chen Mao in those days was to do something that would uh, would definitely endanger your life. It was suicidal. Yeah. I mean, because I think it's very hard for people to imagine the kind of things that could get you into mm. trouble in mm. those days. I mean, for example, you know, people would sort of dutifully write down Chairman Mao quotes, but maybe they'd get a character wrong and someone would say, well, you did that on purpose. So e- even when you were trying to sort of do the right thing in their terms, or oh Lord, it was, there were just these pitfalls all the way. I mean, it was an incredibly sort of treacherous terrain. And that, and that sense of absolute danger everywhere, in every relationship, in everywhere you went in life. And, and the sense, I suppose, you know, just coming back to a point you were making earlier about the the reasons why it happened and what Mao wanted to do, actually it took on a life of its own, didn't it? And all kinds of, you know, unintended consequences as well as the intended consequences happened to the extent that the revolution began to eat its own children. Perpetrators became victims, became perpetrators rather like in this family. And nobody knew how to navigate during that decade. And so you just see a nation that's hugely traumatised still and that struggles 
to come to terms with what people have done, what was done to them. Um, in some cases, I think even really the sort of the rehabilitations that followed afterwards almost sort of made it worse because there were people who sort of found a way to rationalise it by thinking, well, I must have done something wrong and I got it wrong. And then to discover after all that, of course, they hadn't. And it was just the zealotry, the paranoia of the moment was in a way almost sort of more devastating to them. And and talking about that trauma and that um, that sense of individual responsibility or victimhood, I'm just coming back for a moment to touch on Xi Jinping. He was, of course, an adolescent when it all broke out. And as you were saying, his family suffered as well. And now here he is leading China. And you say this is a nation of of trauma victims, effectively. And he himself is one. Do you, when you look at the policies and behaviour and utterances and uh, of Xi Jinping, do you think, oh, I see that teenage trauma victim in that man of in his early 70s? I think it's very hard not to see him as a man deeply shaped and deeply scarred uh, by his experiences, as so many are in China. Um, there's a brilliant podcast series, incidentally, by The Economist, which sort of looks at his background, The Prince, for anybody who, who's interested in knowing more. But he's someone who went through such sort of powerful, formative experiences at a very young age. He's part of that generation. Um, in his case, of course, his father had been a very powerful leader. He'd been purged even before the uh, Cultural Revolution. He'd fallen from favour. But of course, things got much worse when the Cultural Revolution started. The family then suffered because of his father. Xi Jinping himself was reportedly denounced by his mother. That the, he, She was forced to sort of denounce him at a, a public session. And then his elder sister, in fact, killed herself some years into the Cultural Revolution because of the ill treatment and then, by of Red course, Guards. He was sent down, as so many, we haven't really talked about this, the 17 million or so young urbanites, mm. teenagers, who were who became a problem to, to Chairman Mao eventually by 1968, a couple of years in, didn't they? It was like, we've got to ship these young people off. They've got too many ideas of their own now. They need to be sent down to the countryside or dispersed, among whom was Xi Jinping himself. In fact, I've been to the cave, the, the Liangzhou, the village where he where he was sent. And that a very formative, you know, so that the trauma experience and then the very hard experience for that urban elite of being sent to the countryside. What did, How does that play in? Well, what's fascinating, I think, is that this is the one part of the Cultural Revolution that the party is actually willing to talk about. Um, so it really has done its best to erase sort of public dis discussion of the Cultural Revolution more generally over the years. But because of Xi Jinping's experiences, these awful years he spent in the countryside have become a kind of creation myth for him. This is where the man sprang from. And he actually puts it in those terms, you know, that I, I became a man there. Um, he so, likes talking in these earthy phrases about buttoning up your jacket from, you know, getting the top button right to do the other buttons correctly and all these kind of rural kind of farmer language he likes to talk, doesn't he? Exactly. And so it, it's very similar, actually, to the way the sort of the Communist Party used something like the Long March. You know, you have this terrible experience, but then you turn it into this narrative of victory and of the triumph of your determination and spirit over the material circumstances and how that makes you a sort of a better person in the long run. And so he has these terrible years in the countryside. You know, when he first gets there, apparently he's even sort of struggling to talk to the farmers because they find it hard to understand each other. Um, he's living in this sort of cave house dug out of a, a cliff. He's um, hauling these huge heavy loads back and forth and all his 
friends, his support network, any kind of comfort have all fallen away completely. Now, it was clearly a massively traumatic time. I mean, 17 million kids sent down, and some of them were as young as 14, who lived through it. Many of them, interestingly, have become more nostalgic about it in retrospect. Um, but it's particularly potent for she, I think, because it speaks to the idea of a leader who has experienced what it is like to be a peasant in the countryside, uh, which, of course, is something that many Western leaders might aspire to, in a sense, the idea of understanding the people. And it's clearly genuine. I mean, there is, you know, it's true. He he spent this time, he suffered. Um, and yet what's fascinating is that he, like so many people, have managed to turn this very... To call it bittersweet is almost too generous because you think it was mostly just incredibly bitter. Um, but they've turned it, they've found a meaning into it. And so through it, he's, it's built this figure of somebody who understands the people, is absolutely determined, um, will do whatever it takes, has the grit to endure and is working towards a sort of a brighter future for That kind of what doesn't nation. kill you makes you stronger exactly, kind of language. Yes. And, and But, you know, without wishing to sound too cynical about his return to power, and yet one needs to be cynical, basically, because... It wasn't that hard for him to get back in in the elite on the elite rung, was it? At the end of it all, um, unlike the other, you know, sixteen point nine nine million who had a really difficult struggle after ten years of not getting any education, of being stuck out in villages, for them to actually get back and get an education when they were competing with people ten years younger at the end of it all. It was a lost generation. It's described as now, isn't it? Yes, and I'm. It's really hard to imagine what it must have been like for them. I mean, we're talking not just about the fact you're going so far from your home. They were told they were going forever. They were supposed to set down roots there, so they didn't know if they were going to see their families again. But they were really also going back in time in a way because they were moving from these cities to places that didn't have electricity or running water. They were living in shacks. I mean, they were sort of, there wasn't, it's not like there was housing available for them. They were just sort of put up wherever they could be. You saw kids dying in work accidents dying from malaria, pneumonia. I mean, a lot of them never made it back at all. So that experience was extraordinarily scarring for a lot of people. I actually think, I mean, it, it, it led, if you look to that sort of determination and dynamism um, that came along in the sort of post-cultural revolution era, I think a lot of that was shaped by so this... So the dynamism of modern China is to some extent rooted in this soil. Yeah, my God, you've got to be determined... Mm to get out. And you have to be flexible and creative. I mean, to, to get back to the cities before the end of the Cultural Revolution, uh, to survive even in that yeah, environment, you, know, you had to be resilient, mm. you had to be um, flexible, you had to think about how you could do it, how you could survive, how you could make connections. Mm. And many of these things really sort of did lead, I think, to that sort of class of entrepreneurs. And also, of course, um, we know that one of the reasons that the government did encourage that sort of movement of entrepreneurs in the 80s was because they had a lot of people who didn't have an education and they didn't really know what to do with them, so they couldn't afford to have them hanging around. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Very interesting point. And, and coming to the question of how this decade is dealt with now, I mean, you've said a couple of things about how, you know, some of the people who had these experiences, interestingly, the bittersweet bit, the kind of sense that it was very tough, but we survived it and we learned some things from it. You know, that that is very present in that generation, isn't it? I mean, in everybody you meet who had that kind of experience. But also I think what's interesting is in the early 80s, there was more of a willingness to confront some of the decade and the things, the awful things that happened, wasn't there? So as you discuss in the book, there was the scar literature. So young people coming back to town, young writers, they could discuss, they could write about their experiences in the countryside. And similarly, the party itself at a top level tried to kind of issue a verdict framing the decade. And yet now you describe it as a decade that's disappeared and, a, and an officially controlled national amnesia. So explain what's happened there. Why was there a limited willingness to discuss this awful, awful scarring decade and now no willingness or a very neuralgic controlling narrative? I think one immediate issue was the fact that in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, things were still so febrile, politics was still so unsettled that they needed to be really sure that uh, that was not going to come back. They wanted to bury that, make sure there was no return to the sort of the gang of four days or the equivalent. Um, so they needed so, to make to clear to everybody just how awful it was, and so they had to had to kind of level with everybody about how, how awful it was. Yes. Yeah, so I think I think it was partly probably the realism of knowing that you had to acknowledge it at some level. And of course, Deng Xiaoping, who became paramount leader relatively quickly after Mao's death uh, with a, a sort of a little interim, um, was somebody who'd been purged himself twice in the Cultural Revolution. Um, and so this was a way of moving on and of justifying the big shift that he would then make towards the market. So it was also a way of saying, this is why we're not doing the Mao thing anymore. Um, it was so terrible. But critically, even when he's telling to people to draft the official verdict on the Cultural Revolution, he says, this is about uniting people to look ahead. He's wanting to draw a line on it. It's not about saying, let's say, set this down in stone and never forget it. It's saying, let's get this over with. We've got to talk about it and then we'll get it, we'll get it out of the way mm -hmm. and we'll move on. And it was very similar with the outpouring of scar literature, for example. It was quite useful to the people at the top to have that sort of outburst of anguish and grief and mourning. Um, but over time, we see more and more constraints being put upon discussion of the subject. So people are then gradually told not to publish histories of the Cultural Revolution and so forth. Um, the spaces become much more policed. We see uh, another a um, Chinese citizen who's ended up moving 
uh, to America, coming back to collect information, ends up being picked up by security officials, for example. It becomes much, much more sensitive to talk about it. And it really sort of disappears from the official narrative. It's very glancingly remarked upon. So, for example, if you go to the National Museum and you see their landmark exhibition, The Road to Rejuvenation, it's all about how the communists saved China from these terrible years of suffering at, at foreign hands, which obviously they did, in, they did endure. Um, but it then sort of glosses extraordinarily quickly over the Cultural Revolution. You know, there's a, there's a sort of a, a little picture of people celebrating once it's all over, which is kind of up in a corner, badly lit in sort of the corner of a room. You know, you're you're not supposed to think about this. You're no, not I supposed agree. To talk I've been there it. and it's it absolutely staggering the way, you know, certainly in that context, it has disappeared. And I mean, what is interesting is very occasionally when it's useful to the powers that be, they will bring it out. And, and precisely because it's not referred to very often, it does have a sort of power and you can really use it however you want because it's so badly known. So uh, when Bo Xi Lai, who was the sort of the very powerful, ambitious party secretary of Chongqing, who obviously fancied himself as a, a rival to Xi, when he was brought down, people sort of talked about the Cultural Revolution as an analogy. Mm. Yeah, in 2012, they, they just talked about the Cultural Revolution a little bit there. Uh, when in Hong Kong, you had protesters calling for universal suffrage, um, you know, there were glancing references again to this being like the Cultural Revolution, these young people out on the streets, it's dangerous. So occasionally the party will sort of wheel it out as this rather useful bogeyman, but essentially they don't want people talking or thinking about it. And that space has become even more policed since she took over because he's become so concerned with history, with the party's narrative. He sees that really as being at the heart of his mission and his story as leader. And why does he wield this tool of history with so much more relish and determination and almost um, vindictiveness when you get to the prosecutions for historical nihilism, i.e. for anyone who has a different version of history from his own? Why is it that he's so hot on, on, on controlling this history? I think he sees history as being extraordinarily powerful. I mean, sort of more than any leader really since... Mao, you would have to say. Um, so as you mentioned, he sort of talks about historical nihilism, which is something that's put on a par as a sort of a danger to the party with Western democracy, for example. And it's it's very hard for us to understand, I think. But history always has had a kind of power in China. People have argued it's almost taking the place of religion as a sort of moral force. So we've sort of seen in the past that dynasties would sort of write the history of the previous dynasty as a a sort of a moral primer. You were setting down uh, markers for how to do and not do governance and so forth. I think in Xi's case, there obviously is a very personal element. Um, but I also think what's clearly critical is that the party's promise to serve the people, really the credibility of that was in tatters after the Cultural Revolution. The massacre which followed 1989's pro-democracy protests, which began in Tiananmen Square, really finished that off for people. And at that point, they began to draw their legitimacy much more from the promise of economic well-being and also sort of national pride. Um, we've seen for a long time China go through this extraordinary period of growth that's faltered in recent years. I mean, this year, the IMF are saying China's growth could actually come in at or below global growth for the first time in decades. Um, and so that promise of material well-being is no longer as powerful. I think the promise of sort of efficiency uh, that the party was offering, of sort of what people call performance legitimacy, is 
really shredded after zero COVID, um, even more so. Um, and so we've seen increasingly this turn to sort of the national narrative, the story about what China is, who we are, about our pride as a nation. And that rests on the Communist Party essentially getting rid of the external threat, tackling the external threat, um, seeing off the external threat, um, and bringing the nation to a place of pride. So, and so in terms that, of the, so in terms of the history, we kind of like big up all the bad things that foreigners did to us. Yes, we minimise the things that we did to each other, or that our glorious Communist Party did to us, and uh, and we big up the wisdom of the great helmsman. And for that, we have to airbrush all the mistakes of Chairman Mao, among which. Exact decade of disaster. Yes, exactly. and yet if Xi Jinping was sitting between us, Tanya, I imagine him sitting here, and he would say, "Well, it's all very well you saying that, but what about the uses and misuses of history in other countries? You're not doing so great yourself when you, you know, frame your history and teach everybody your wonderful resistance in the Second World War, but you don't talk about your slaving history unless you can possibly help it. And look at the rows that that's produced when people try to talk about it. So he would point to a hypocritical." Um, failure of his critics to address their own history or to acknowledge their own attempts to massage history. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you, you can't look at China's history without looking at the role that Britain played, without looking at the fact that we waged a war over our right to sort of peddle drugs, you know. Um, th this is certainly not something I ever learned in school. And when I sort of look back at what I learned, the omissions and erasures just seem absolutely staggering and, and shocking to me because you can't really understand Britain without understanding empire and slavery. So is I it mean, a different kind of amnesia but, or is it the uh, same kind of cynical control the narrative amnesia? I think in the West there's been complacency and arrogance and we often haven't really needed to look very closely at what we did because it was happening over there. It, it wasn't happening to us. In China, I think it's much harder because everybody saw it um, and in many cases participated so it's different but I think the other critical thing of course is that we can discuss this we're sitting here having a conversation about it now that will be aired David Olasoga goes on the BBC and makes programs about Britain's history um, when it comes to slavery it's utterly unthinkable that the equivalent could ever ever happen in China nobody here is being prosecuted because they say that Winston Churchill was racist, you know. These things can be discussed and they are discussed. You can have a uh, a career built around a challenging counter-narrative of history. So I think we have a very, very long way to go, but there are some really fundamental differences in terms of censorship, um, in terms of punishment for these kinds of discussions and the fact that we know about these things. There are books being put on the shelves every day which offer alternative narratives. So a puzzle, Tanya, do you think anyone in China is going to get to read this book? No, um, I wouldn't have thought so. But I mean, I would say there are wonderful books written on the Cultural Revolution, wonderful scholarship that's been done by Chinese writers and thinkers. Uh, some of that people have been able to have access to. I hope in the future there will be a time when many, many more people will be able to read those books and those writings. Perhaps one day they'll be taught in schools. There is such a wealth of knowledge and experience out there. And so this book was written for people outside who don't know about China, perhaps who don't know much about it. I hope that people in there will be able to access the incredible wealth of knowledge and skill um, and will appreciate. You hope, but is that likely? Out. And if so, when? 
Oh, not in the near future. Not, not as long as the party is in power, I would have thought. I think there is also another thing, isn't there, which is that um, the Chinese public, because so much of the past is so difficult and traumatic, the Cultural Revolution for sure that decade, but also so much else, that there's a forward-driving narrative with eyes forward, focused on the China dream. You know, Xi Jinping talks like that. And actually, many Chinese people, it's a turbulent, fast-changing society where all is to play for or has felt for the past 30 years, maybe even, you know, 40 years, that there's so much to play for. And we will, we will look forward and avoid thinking about our traumas. And to be honest, to bring that back on a personal level, a lot of trauma victims need to compartmentalise their trauma, don't they? Whatever kind of trauma it is in an individual life or on a national scale, wherever they are in the world, trauma victims compartmentalise trauma. I think, yes. And to me, I mean, what was perhaps most fascinating, when I started thinking about the Cultural Revolution, I thought it was very much a story about how the government suppressed discussion. And what was fascinating to me was that it became very clear that, in fact, a lot of it is to do with personal trauma, uh, personal experience, the search for meaning and value. And so what makes this subject so sensitive is partly people just can't bear to think about it. Uh, It's almost as if they fear that you say the words and it sort of, it brings it back. There is... Yeah, because when Almost I, that sense when, I was, being when I was reading the book, and I mean, it's fascinating to me. But I, I had the voices of my Chinese friends and family in my in my head, and I can imagine them like if they read a chapter about somebody's cultural revolution experience, they'd go, "Well, I know that. I lived that. You know, I was there. You know, they're impatient sometimes. I don't want to generalize, but." People don't necessarily want to relive it through the eyes of their neighbour because it was so intense anyway. And because everybody had such a different and such a personal experience of it. And so that was, again, one of the things that I found fascinating was that even people who say the Cultural Revolution was terrible and we need to remember it so we never go back there, in fact, turn out to have these very different analyses of what the problem is and how you should respond to it now. And it becomes incredibly bitter, in fact, these sort of, these rows over how you remember the Cultural Revolution. And it really made me sort of see why the party would be scared of going back there, not just in terms of their political survival, which I'm sure is paramount, but that it is a sort of social problem. These are very difficult things to air. Um, But the counter to that, of course, is that if you don't, they don't go away they just sort of burst out in other ways. And as we said, it's so present there under the surface. And when I was sort of talking, particularly talking to the psychotherapists I speak to in my book, who are now treating um, not just those who lived through the Cultural Revolution, who in many cases will not go anywhere near um, a psychotherapist or so forth, but often the children or even the grandchildren, you know, these things are passing down through the generations. Yes, I mean, which makes complete sense and yet it's very very subtle isn't it so give us a give us an example of 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 where through a psychotherapist conversation or directly you've met some someone something where you thought mm, that's cultural revolution transgenerational trauma i see it before me i mean it's it's fascinating actually when i sort of talk to friends about their parents and grandparents and these very fractured family relationships and you can see how the defensiveness of members the animosity between members, sometimes going very back, very directly to experiences in the Cultural Revolution and how they helped each other or didn't help each other or were seen to be letting each other down and so forth. The 
are still playing out to this day. Um, but even when it's really not discussed at all, I mean, the one the one that really should have shocked me, and which I talk about in the book, is a, a case of this young student who's always seemed very well behaved, and suddenly uh, the university authorities discover he's written this extremely graphic, detailed account of murdering one of his tutors. And so they then follow up and he ends up being sent to a, a psychotherapist. And it emerges when his sort of parents come down, very loving family, very concerned about him. It emerges, in fact, that his grandfather was murdered by Red Guards in front of his dad. And his dad has never spoken a word about this to the son, but he has brought him up with this incredible sense of fear, vigilance, defensiveness, that you cannot ever let your guard down, that you cannot show any anger, that you cannot let your feelings sort of manifest in any way. And so this thing that has never been discussed, and perhaps because it's never been discussed, has ricocheted down through the generations. You know, And I just thought this father, this very sort of loving man who'd thought, he was saving and protecting his son by never approaching any of this and in fact had affected him to this extent you know it's it feels in some ways you know so inescapable and yet the sort of the hopeful thing is that people do go on you know this man loved his son even after everything he'd been through he was this very loving and attentive father they went through, you know, family therapy and so forth to get together and hopefully there was a much better outcome at the end of it. And there are all these people I met who went through these unimaginable experiences. You know, I can't tell what I would have done in their circumstances had I been there. I can't tell how I would have reacted afterwards. And it is incredibly humbling to see these people who have not only survived but sometimes thrived, are capable of loving people and showing love, of forming relationships, of being good neighbours, good members of society. Um, one of the people I talk about is a, an amazing composer called Wang Xilin, who's now living in Germany. He's about 87 now, and he's an, in, an incredible guy. He almost died in the Cultural Revolution. I mean, he was buried in a pit up to his neck. He thought they were going to kill him. Um, it's an extraordinary story of survival on one level, but... He is also a man who has flourished and grown. And when you meet him, he is always looking for something new. He is 87 and he's still interested in the next thing in life, in learning new languages, going to new places, writing new work. He is this absolute force of nature, incredible. And yet at the same time, you know, he said to me, if somebody on the street calls out to me, Wang Xilin, I, you know, that's it, I'm trembling I'm scared because he still remembers that situation from all these decades ago of just sitting at the struggle sessions just waiting for that moment that they call your name and you know you're next. We've pretty much run out of time Tanya but just one last question about you researching and writing this book. I mean the impact must be deep intense on you of dealing with all this trauma. What would you like readers to take away from it because of course if they read it it's going to make them sad. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's it's a book with a lot of sadness. It is. I hope it's also a book with hope because the people I met were so incredible um, and the fact that they wanted to share their stories and they wanted this to be known. And as I said, that they have gone on to construct these lives and move, move past their suffering 
they're still living with it, but they are they are living on. They're having full full lives. Um, so I think that's one important thing is just to sort of hear their stories. But I hope people will also think about the parallels with our society. It was really important to me that people didn't just see this as being a book about China. It is obviously about terrible events that grew out of a particular political moment in one place with a particular political culture. But so many of the things resonated with me as I was writing it in a way that I hadn't expected. And the sort of divisions we've seen in our own society, the kind of fermenting of political hatred, the whipping up of sort of populist sentiment. You know, one of the critical phrases to me is when sort of Mao says, who are our enemies? Who are our friends? This is the most important question. And to me, the so The weaponization much, of fear. The weaponization of fear and the idea that you draw these lines and somebody is on one side or the other. Uh, all those are things I sort of saw parallels with with the demonization of people. And I hope that it will make people think about what they would do in these situations. But I think it's, it's very easy for people to feel superior outside China about life in China. I don't I think it's quite hard for it's quite hard sometimes, isn't it, for people to outside China to understand what it would be like to be in the midst of a country this big with a with a with a political culture that enmeshed and dense and how what freedom of maneuver you might even feel that you had yes and i think to me i i just my fear i suppose would be that people stand in in judgment and think how could somebody do that my hope is that they will come away with a better understanding of why people would do that and what we're all capable of doing. Mm. And at its heart, I think really this is a book about how people go on when the worst has happened, because people do. And there is hope in there, but I hope it sort of begins with compassion and an understanding that this is a book that has resonances for all of us. Yeah, I think that compassion, I mean, that would be my conclusion, the compassion um, and the sense of individual stories, because often Chinese history is told in big numbers, epic events, you know, the tens of millions who died in the Great Leap Forward, the two million who died in the Cultural Revolution. You know, it's 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 it, it's not personalised and individualised. And this is what your book does. It makes it, it brings it down to an individual who you end up caring about. Tanya, thanks so much for talking to us today. And thanks so much for writing this book, which must have been a very difficult process to write, but it's a brilliant outcome. I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend Red Memory. Get it wherever you buy your books. You've been... Watching or listening to Intelligence Squared today, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle with additional production and editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. 
I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.